good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please turn tonight in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And let's read the first seven verses. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. And so he went with them, and when they came down to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick, and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore said he, Take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it. Amen. We look to the Lord to bless his word to your souls tonight. How on earth do you deal with the subject of an axe head swimming? And you come to it in your uh, Bible readings, or you come to it in a series like this, uh, and it's a very important question to ask. Where do you begin? Why is it in the Bible? What is the purpose of a revelation? And all of those things are uh, very important to consider. We are in the will of God next week starting a, a preaching class dealing with the subject of, of homiletics and how to present the Word of God. But perhaps the most important method of homiletical instruction is the preacher's example. And that the man of God in the pulpit, wherever that pulpit is, that they would in themselves exemplify good hermeneutical principles so the people themselves understand how to interpret the word because of what they see Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And if the preacher is careless with his interpretation, well then that in turn encourages the people to be careless with theirs. It is very important. It's very important for the man of God to be very careful regarding biblical interpretation. And so when you come to this account, there are several possible ways that this could be looked at. Some might tend to rationalize the text. They may say it's not really a miracle. Simply someone poked around in shallow waters with a stick. And they poked around with a stick. They moved the axe head to a place where the man could reach it. And they would say that God can't do miracles. The text is, a, is an act of grand exaggeration. Well, there are a few problems with that in this account. Uh, there are those authorities who say that Jordan was fast-flowing where they were. And they also, we should not remember that axe heads sink. And they don't swim. And the text clearly says it swims. So we shouldn't treat the Bible with such a careless approach. And we shouldn't treat God and with such a careless, unbelieving approach. But that is the method of some. They look at a text like this, and they, they rationalize the text. Another method, perhaps more familiar to us, is that some may allegorize the text. They may say, yes, the, the, uh, the event happened in history, 
but it is really given to us as a parable. It's a true story, but there are lessons, parable-like lessons, and they may say something like this. Well, the axe represents the soul of man. The Jordan speaks of judgment, and the stick, because it's wood, must refer to the cross. And therefore, man is redeemed from judgment by the work of the cross. Now, that's true. That's absolutely true. Man is redeemed from judgment by Christ's work on the cross. But it is Christ on the cross, not the cross itself, that is the means of redemption. And more importantly, how to begin to know that that is what the text is suggesting. That is, people like ourselves, uh, looking at the text with uh, New Testament eyes and inserting that understanding in the text. But truth be told, it is more than likely not the reason or the meaning in the text in its original setting. Others, well, they may moralize the text. They may look at the text and see moral lessons. Some suggest you shouldn't do building programs don't move, don't move from place to place. If you're a, a settled church, then you should stay as a settled church. Others say, well, you shouldn't borrow axe heads or don't build near water. All those sort of things can come out of a text such as this. That's all fine and good. But none of those things, of course, are binding principles in the Word of God. And if you interpret the Bible that way, you will perhaps lead yourself into all sorts of bondage. Or you'll put a principle of God's word upon your soul that is the commandments of man and not the commandments of God. It's not what the Bible's for. So if you're here tonight and you're thinking of moving house or some other project, uh, please do not use this text to stop you from doing something that is prudent and wise in the will of God. So how do we begin to interpret this portion of Scripture? Well, I suggest you should ask some questions. Questions of the text that then, I believe, will, will help us to lead in the right direction. When does this event take place? To whom was it written? Why was it written? All of those questions are very, very important. Well, of course, the event takes place in the life and the ministry of Elisha the prophet. These are days of religious declension, religious apostasy, when there is a small but faithful remnant of true God-fearing believers. God's word at the time is held in the prophets. People like Elijah and Elisha and these schools of the prophets, these sons of the prophets, they are holding the word of God. So that's something of the when, times of religious declension. But to whom was it originally written? Well, we know the answer to that also, at least in part, the end of 2 Kings includes the details of the captivity of Judah into Babylon. Therefore, this book was written after the Babylonian captivity, written either to those captives or to those who are returning from captivity, but more than likely written to those who were captive in Babylon. So how, we should ask, how would exiles in Babylon read these events a few hundred years after they happen, what would they take away from this account? Well, what do you take away from the accounts of the Great Awakening? You read about Edwards, you read Whitfield, you read about God's movements, the hundred years plus past, and you read about those things, and you're encouraged in your soul. You take great encouragement by a remembrance of God's work in the past. 
And thus I think this text is written to encourage the people about their God. In a difficult time, they are being pointed to see their God. So why does this event take place in the first place? Why is it then recorded? Why is it then preserved? Well, surely it is to teach us about God. Miracles are always signs. Always signs. They're always given to point to the, uh, to the man of God, but also to point to the ways of God. They testify to the authority of Elisha, but they also reveal the nature of God. Only God can do miracles. And when we see miracles, we see the very ways of the Lord. So let me show you three truths regarding God that arise out of this portion. With the intent purpose that as we begin a new year, we will be encouraged in the Lord. That we be encouraged as a small remnant living in apostate days. That we would take ourselves back and as it were, we'd be like those in Babylon. And we would receive the benefit as we think about the Lord. As we see him in his works at this time. First of all, we should see that God is the unchanging God who is not opposed to progress. God's not opposed to progress and development in his work. Back in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, uh, we read about how God provided for the sons of the prophets with the, uh, the rescuing of the great pot of pottage, uh, 2 Kings 4 and the verse number 38. God had been providing for the sons of the prophets. He's also provided this place for them. Verse 1, the place where we dwell. It is the Lord who puts a roof over our heads. And it would seem to me that the Lord has provided a place for them. And I think the sense here is this was like a, a seminary boarding school. They were there, they lived there, and they learned the word of God and the ways of the prophets in these places. God had provided that place. And the word to dwell or to live that's used here speaks of sitting. But that place was no longer suitable for their needs. The place where we dwell is too straight for us, too narrow, too small. It's no longer suitable and it is time to pack up and move on. And so verses 1 and 2 give us that account. In verse 2, they say to Elisha, Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. We want to build a new building. And we should note that the progress is approved. God has no protest with such a thought. This is the times. Now, this perhaps is not so relevant to us in this present season. But there have been seasons in the house of the work of God where people have been slow to move to new premises because of understanding that God had provided the previous situation. I had the joy of my last congregation of opening a new building. And it was a difficult time as the, the people were nostalgic regarding the blessing of God in the former building. It had been given in unusual circumstances. They could see the very hand of God in the provision. And now it was, it was too straight for them and it was a time to move on. But that's challenging. If we move on, are we denying God's past blessings? 
If we are looking for new things, is that indication that God, uh, we don't believe that God has been sufficient in his provision in the past. Of course, this goes beyond a, a church building or such things. Uh, there is that general principle in life that God is not opposed to our progress and our development. I've had the joy of pastoring at a time when there's been a, an increase in technology that can be used for the purpose of the kingdom. Great suspicion. How will the word wide web be used for evil? Uh, can it be a, a means for good? And there's all sorts of debates that take place regarding uh, the use of big screens in churches or iPads to bring to church and read your Bible on. There's all sorts of debates and there are many pros and cons and this is not the time for, for argument on those things. But I would simply say that we should not reject change because of tradition. And God himself is not opposed to progress for the pursuit of the kingdom of God, provided it is within the confines of his principles of God's word and for his glory. And here we see God is not opposed to this progress. But the progress that is approved is also a progress that is activated. And this is one of the great texts that has this interaction between the, uh, the will of God and the activities of the people that are involved there. Note their cooperation. Note their exertion. Note their concern. They have cooperation. Take every man a beam in some sort of large plank. And they were going to take it themselves. They were going to carry it themselves. And I believe the principle is they were going to give it themselves. And they were going to buy this and take it. And they were all going to be involved. And there was even cooperation from the person who lent the axe head. There's a sense of cooperation and a corporate pursuit in this progress. Clearly, it is a time for exertion. These are Bible students who aren't scared to get their hands dirty and to put their shoulder literally to the work and be involved in carrying a beam and, and building a structure. It's part of what it was to be involved in the Lord's work. It took hard work. It took exertion. Sleeves rolled up, all of those things. But their concern, I believe interestingly, was that they would go with the Lord's presence. One said, verse number three, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. They're, they're asking for Elisha to come along. Did they want his counsel, his advice? Did they want this discussion? How big do we build the auditorium and such things? I, I don't really know. But I do believe that they understood that with Elijah came the Lord. And to have Elisha with them was to have the Lord with them. And any progress in the work of God is nothing unless the Lord is with us. Some of the great tragedies of uh, this time in American church history are the tremendous church buildings that have not the Lord in them. Some tremendous structures built perhaps with those who desired the Lord's blessing at the season. But the Lord's not in them. His word is not being preached. There is no place for prayer. It is not a house of prayer. It's a house of merchandise. And it's all about the structure. It's all about the impressive edifice. But the Lord is not there. The men did not want that. And I tell you, we must never want that. Whatever the Lord has for us in this place, as we go forward, we must go forward with the Lord with us. 
And that's a prayer to pray each and every time we come together. Lord, come with us. Go with us. Bless us with your presence each and every day. And so God, this unchanging God, is a God who's not opposed to progress. But in the second place, God is the almighty God who is pleased to respond to his people's needs. The Lord here is involved in the little things in the work of God. This story sits in an interesting context. Chapter 5 of 2 Kings and the rest of chapter 6 deal with major issues of national importance. There is a Syrian captain going to the king of Israel demanding to be healed from his leprosy. That's war on the horizon. And later on you have similar national events. The king of Syria versus warred against Israel. And the context of, of nations butting heads, nation against nation, there is a very simple account of God dealing with a borrowed axe head. The Lord is willing to bless a bunch of humble Bible students who can't afford to pay others, who don't have enough money to own their own implements, and disaster strikes. This is a significant problem. Don't think of this in terms of Home Depot and one axe goes into the river, we'll just go and buy another one. They didn't have one to begin with, they had borrowed the axe head. And in the time, there was issues of reputation, integrity, you borrowed something, you had to return it. You had even the issue of the man's freedom being a stick. Uh, it took time and money to make an axe head. This is not an insignificant matter, as it were, for the individual. But it is, in terms of the big picture of nations at war, it is something of a smaller significance. But God is pleased to work. God is pleased to intervene. Remind ourselves that God's work done God's way can still bring challenges into the work. They're, they're following the will of God here. Well, we saw this last Lord's Day in a similar fashion when it came to the disciples' obedience to cross to the other side. Here they're, they've asked the permission of Elisha. He's given them his blessing. He's come with them. They're doing God's work and God's way, and yet problems and challenges still arise. We do endeavor with all of our souls to do the work of God God's way here. We seek to be biblical in all that we say and do, that our every action has as his authority the word of God. We're not given to man's inventions. We don't want to be involved in that sort of nonsense in the work of God. We want to do God's work God's way. But such does not exempt us from problems and from difficulties. We shouldn't expect because of our desire to be biblical, therefore it all will be smooth and easy. There will be problems in the Lord's work. And they will come. And they will come this year. And the next year. And every year. And in those problems, we must remind ourselves that God is pleased to step into the needs of the hour. There's a miracle here. Look what it says. Verse number 6. He cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Now, the miracle here is remarkable. And young people, children, 
If I was asked you the question, what does wood do when it's thrown in water, you would say wood floats. But the language here indicates that the wood sinks. They cast the stick in thither, and the sense is of the stick going down, the iron that sinks, it does come up. It is a very clear miracle of God as tragedy is reversed by the power of God. By the power of God, that which is natural is overturned. God is a God who takes care of these things, and he's pleased to step into the needs of the hour. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible, and you'll hear me quote it often in prayer, and the psalmist says, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Psalm 40 and verse number 17. The Lord steps in in ways that surprise us. He's pleased to come to the help of a bunch of humble believers, the sons of the prophets. God's not unmindful of our needs in this place. He's not unmindful when the troubles come, that we can seek his face with assurance that he's pleased to step in. God is willing to bless the faithful remnant in unbelieving days. You know this. Perhaps you're sitting there now going, yep, believe that, preacher. But let's make it a belief in our hearts that God is willing to believe a humble remnant in unbelieving days. We should also see that God is pleased to come to the help of those who ask. Verse number five, but as one was felling the beam, the axe had fallen, sorry, axe had fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. There's a trouble. And where does he go with his trouble? He goes to the man of God. And as we've noticed in the life of Elisha, when you go to the man of God, you're going to the Lord. Ask, seek, and knock. And God responds in grace when we ask him to respond in grace. God is pleased at times to step in and help us when we don't ask for it. It's one of the aspects of his grace. Surely you can all think of times in your life when the Lord did something dramatic, unbelievable. And it's only after the event that you thought, I, I didn't even pray about that matter. I didn't even think about praying about that matter. And yet the Lord has stepped in in some wonderful way and we see his hand. But such should never discourage us from going to the Lord in prayer about things that seem insignificant in the affairs of the nations. He is a God who's willing to hear our prayers. And we ask, he's willing to give. So you see an unchanging God, not opposed to progress. You see an almighty God, pleased to respond to his people's needs. And finally, you see a faithful God who treasures and preserves his word. The group of people who have a need here are the prophets of God. And God meets their needs. And it's something you see in the event of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah brings a word of judgment, leaves the scene of Ahab, and goes to the brook Cherith, and the Lord preserves him. He goes to the widow, and the Lord preserves him. You see, in the account of these two men, many, many times when the Lord is preserving the prophets and the sons of the prophets, he preserves and keeps his word. 
You think you could turn briefly as we close to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and in 1 Peter chapter 1 you have the assurance of the preservation of God's word. 1 Peter 1, verse number 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of God, of the Lord, sorry, endureth forever. Now perhaps you read that, and so you think about the scriptures, and you should. But what does it say after that? And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The Lord not only preserves the scriptures, his word, he also preserves the proclamation of his word. He preserves the means of the word being announced to a fallen world. And this is true. Throughout history, the Bible has been preserved. There is no book as preserved as the Bible. It is truth. It brings truth. But the Bible that is preserved is also the Bible that is preached. And in every season of history, though at times the candle burned with a very low flame, in every season there have been those who have preached the Word of God and who have written about the Word of God and who have passed on those treasuries down through the centuries to us today. God, in floating the axe head, is showing us that he desires to preserve the preaching of the word. And he's pleased to honor the desires of the men of God, to advance the kingdom, and to work for the glory of Christ in the proclamation of the gospel in an unbelieving world. And that, I believe, should encourage our souls. Is there direct application to your hearts from an axe head falling into the Jordan? No, but there is tremendous indirect application as we see the ways and the works of God and consider a God that does not change and a God who is still pleased to bless his people who desire to take the work forward and pronounce his word to a lost generation. And to that end, may God help us to pray in light of our knowledge of our God. Amen. We thank the Lord again for his word to our souls tonight. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.